Middle of the country, but not middle of the road opinions. It's the podcast dedicated to sports in the air capital of the world. I'm going to Wichita. Wichita, Kansas, and beyond with Tommy Castor and Blake Cripps. This is Keeper of the Games. Some may say that we are wildly unqualified. Some may say we are only mildly entertaining. I say we are exactly where we are supposed to be, bringing you the latest and greatest in Wichita sports on episode 90 of the Keeper of the Games podcast, the only podcast focusing on sports in and around and of interest to Wichita, Kansas. I am your host, Blake Cripps. You can find us on all the social media platforms. Make sure you like and share and subscribe right now. You can stop the podcast and do it immediately. Cogsports.com. Facebook.com slash Keeper of the Games, at CogPod on Twitter, and of course the audio drops first, CogPod.Podomatic.com. I am joined once again by my co-host Tommy Castor. Tommy, have you been catching any of the Olympics here? Those are underway since we were last on the show. Any Olympics on in your household here over the last week? Uh, short answer is no. Uh, long Brutal. answer. Why? Long answer is I'm not really a Winter Olympics guy. I'm more of a a Summer Olympics guy. Okay. Um, you know, so I I enjoy watching that. Now there are a couple of sports in the Winter Olympics that I can get behind. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm one of those weird people. I enjoy watching a little bit of curling. Uh, every now I, and I again. I also like curling. But I like things like you know the luge and the bobsled and snowboarding sure. and that sort of thing. Um, but overall, I'm much more of a Summer Olympics guy than Winter Olympics. I mean, I did catch some of the team figure skating already. Uh, Chloe Kim, like just before we came on tonight, I mean, she's going to win the gold medal. I mean, you know, not really a spoiler at this point. She put like a 94 in her first round, so there will have to be someone will have to become like literally Supergirl and fly around in order to beat her. She's unbelievable. Um, but I think that there is going to be a lot of interesting action. Women's hockey. I'm actually very, very excited for another chance at perhaps Team USA versus Team Canada. Men's hockey, no NHL players, so I have no time for men's hockey this year. But anyway, uh, I am very excited about the Olympics. Probably going back to that as soon as we get done today. Uh, The audio is pretty much everywhere. If you'd like to listen to us while you're watching the Olympics, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google, Apple, and so much more. Coming up on the show today is our official Wichita State Diamond Sports Preview episode. We are talking... Shocker softball starting the year at number 25 in the country. And we'll also preview Shocker baseball as well. We might have a few words, not going to spend a ton of time, but there have been some very big Jayhawk basketball games and a couple of big Shocker basketball games. We'll probably give a couple of passing thoughts on that. But we'll begin today with the thing that we're not talking about, and that is the Super Bowl, because the Chiefs ain't playing this year for the second game this season. The Chiefs' offense disappeared in the second half, and the Bengals punched their ticket to the Super Bowl, a shocking 27-24 come-from-behind victory at Arrowhead Stadium to win the AFC Championship game. Chiefs rolled up to a 21-3 lead to start the game, but a late touchdown and a hold by Cincinnati gave them hope, and they made the Chiefs pay for not taking a field goal to win the first half. They stopped the Chiefs, who had the opening possession of overtime, drove right down the field on the Chiefs' defense, and kicked the game-winning field goal. Tommy, up 21-3. to I don't know how much money I would have bet that the Chiefs were going to be in the Super Bowl. It seemed, as a fan, like a foregone conclusion. But Joe Burrow may be writing the first chapter in what may be considered one of the greatest quarterback stories to ever be told in the NFL. Obviously, way too early to make that proclamation one way or the other. But for an opening act, 
this was pretty incredible to come in to the house of what everybody says is going to be maybe the greatest of all time eventually, maybe the best active quarterback right now, and just completely outplay him in the second half of this football game and give credit to the Cincinnati defense as well because for the second game, after looking like they had not even practiced all week against the Chiefs in the first half, they come out and completely handcuff Mahomes and the red and gold in the second half of this football game. After the momentum of Buffalo, I I was worried about some sort of a letdown like this. I, I don't know if I could have ever predicted the manner in which the Chiefs lost this football game after shredding Cincinnati for about the first, oh, let's say 25 minutes of this game. And then for the last 25, 35 minutes, just looking like they had no clue of what to do. Tommy, it was one of the most dumbfounding second halves of football that I think I may have ever watched. Uh, First off, thank you for making me relive this. Uh, I I thought that I had been able to block it out entirely uh, for the rest of my life. Um, Unfortunately, you know, we we can break it down. Responsibility calls. Yeah. So basically, this Chiefs team is so frustrating in a variety of ways. And we'll 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 talk about it. We'll get into it. Uh, But it's been all year. It really has been. What's crazy to me is that I was less confident when the Chiefs were up 21 to 3 then I think I would have been if the Chiefs were down 21 to 3 if they were down 21 to 3 I would have felt like all right well there's a comeback in them and we've seen them do that countless times in the playoffs at home uh you know we, that's what Mahomes does you know that he can just flip a switch and the offense just starts doing their thing the defense starts to hold and all of a sudden you get on a quick run and the team puts up, you know, three or four touchdowns in a span of 10 to 12 minutes. We've seen it happen before, but for some reason, when they were up 21 to three going into halftime, I didn't feel confident at all. And I think a lot of that has to do not with the players on the field, but it has a little bit to do with Andy Reid. And I want to be clear. I like Andy Reid. I've always supported Andy Reid, but one thing after watching his teams in Kansas City, and I think he did a little bit of this in Philadelphia as well during his tenure, he had a tendency to take his foot off the gas in the second half as far as the play calling was concerned. It's happened. We've seen it with this Chiefs team over the last nine years that Andy Reid has coached the team. Not every game, and it's not all the time like this, but there are times where The Chiefs have played not to lose. And you look at some of these playoff losses that the Chiefs have had over the years. This was the first time that I felt like uh, we were really seeing a Chiefs playoff collapse with Patrick Mahomes under center. Not unlike the Chiefs collapses in the playoffs that we saw with Alex Smith under center. I go back to the playoff game. I believe it was in... It was in Andy Reid's first season and Alex Smith's first season, 2013. They took on the Indianapolis Colts. I believe the Chiefs were up like 41 to 10 or something like that. They lost the game 45-44. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. You remember that? That Wasn't that against Andrew Luck in Indianapolis? Oh, yeah, it was. You know, and... and, By the way, 
thank goodness the Chiefs actually won that Super Bowl because if they hadn't, yeah. I would have been on the roof of my apartment complex, and I probably would have, I probably would have been jumping, yeah. or, or you would have found me in front of a train. I, I cannot tell you if the Chiefs had not won a Super Bowl, how devastated I sure. would have been. If, and I, I, at the I think prospect that of this game. That's that kind of uh, I think allows at least me to look at this with kind of fresh eyes because I'm not like I don't know I told a not few as different people now are you Hey the, you know we got our ring a couple of years ago like yeah obviously I want more uh, of course you know, but hey we got our ring a couple of years ago so it's it's not we're not waiting for fifty you know plus years to get a to get a championship but I I, I go not. back I go back to, to you know to what I said and and I I just I feel like what was so interesting was uh, Tracy Wolfson for CBS. When the game got out of halftime at the very beginning of the third quarter, she did a sideline report where she said she talked to Andy Reid. Of course, keep in mind the Chiefs were up twenty-one to three at that point, and she would have been twenty-one ten at the twenty-one halftime. to ten. At halftime. They got that late they, touchdown. Right, they were up twenty-one to ten, uh, and she did. She gave that halftime report and said that Andy Reid had told her that it was going to be extremely important to not take their foot off the gas in the second half. And that's exactly what they did with the play calling, with just the 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 effort, uh, the just, and, and not to take anything away from Cincinnati, they adjusted fantastically in the second half. They did what they needed to do to shut down Patrick Mahomes. And what's so interesting, Blake, and I know we can get more into the nuance of the actual game and all of that, here in just a moment, but I, I do want to touch on this before I forget that what the Bengals did defensively to shut down Patrick Mahomes was night and day different than what the Buccaneers did to shut down Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl last year. Last year, it was they threw so much pressure at him. They blitzed him left and right. Now, the offensive line was garbage for Kansas City last year. It was slightly better this year, but they, Mahomes was running for his life in the pocket. The Bengals dropped like eight guys in coverage, and it and Mahomes had nobody to throw to, and you know, just kind of kind of faltered in the second half because of that. So the defensive game plan, I just found I found that fascinating how different it was from a year ago in the Super Bowl to the AFC championship game this year. And I think it shows that there are ways, there clearly are ways to make the Chiefs and that high flying offense ineffective. And they certainly did. And and that was the second time that they did that. Chiefs yeah. probably should have won on the road when they were playing at, you know, whatever. Didn't they used to play at Joe Robbie Stadium? I don't even know if they're still there anymore. Yeah, but I don't know what it's called did, now. When they when they were playing up at, at Cincinnati. Isn't it you know, Paul Brown Stadium? That, or is that the no, Browns? That's, that's the Browns. Okay. I think it used to be the right. Brown Stadium. I don't, I don't know. know. It doesn't really matter. But they, they, they did the exact same thing. And so I think that there was something to be said about the lack of adjustments. However... For me, and again, you know, you said you, you know, you like Andy Reid. I love Andy Reid. Sure. We both love Patrick Mahomes. In the first half, Patrick Mahomes was 17 of 19 for 220 yards, three touchdowns. He didn't throw another touch in the second half. He was yep. nine for 20, 55 yards. He threw two picks. He hit a he hit a lineman with a pass. Yeah. Which never happens. So to me, you can criticize the game plan in the second half if you want to. I don't know 
what percentage of the blame goes where? Is it was it something that Andy Reid did? Was it something that Patrick Mahomes said he wanted to do? Did Eric Bieniemy make a bad suggestion? I don't know. But 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 the bottom line is Patrick Mahomes was not good in the second half. Right. He missed receivers. Yep. He did not make correct reads. And as I listened to the game, because I was on the I was on the bus coming back from Emporia State, uh, covering the the Jets on that day. So I listened to the whole train wreck. You know, I, I got done with the game. You know, Newman had lost to Emporia State. And they said, oh, yeah, it's 21-3. to And I'm like, all right, that's the best news I've heard today. <laughs> and then I'm getting in the car. And I'm listening on the way home. And it just keeps – we get keep getting closer to Wichita. I'm like, okay, when, when's this going to happen? When, mm-hmm. When's the magic? When's, when's the Mahomes magic coming? When's Kelsey going to make a big play? When's the Cheetah going to make a big play? When's the defense going to get a turnover? And it never happened. And the defense, you look at the second half – they really didn't play that bad. They gave up 14 second half points, but they only gave up one touchdown. They mm. only gave up one field goal, and it was a 52-yard field goal was all they gave up in the fourth quarter. The Chiefs had every opportunity offensively to make something happen in that game, and for whatever reason, and the Chiefs gave up four sacks in this game. Maybe it's the offensive line, but something that they talked about on the radio was the fact, and this, I, you know, because of the NFL's draconic blackout rules, I didn't get the Chiefs radio network. I had to listen to the Westwood One call with Ian Eagle. He's great, by the way, so that doesn't really matter. But they talked about the fact that they thought that Patrick Mahomes was not taking what the defense gave him, that he was trying to force things when it was open long, he would go short. When it was open short, he would go middle. When the slot was open, he would try, you know, he, he was doing the wrong thing, making the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. So I wanted your take on that in terms of his decision-making. Was it just a matter of him, you know, we can give all the credit to the Bengals that we want, and, you know, they should get credit. They held Kansas City in check in the second half, but was it more of the Bengals making an adjustment or was it Patrick Mahomes not reading the defense properly? I think it was both. Uh, I think you have to give credit where credit is due to the Bengals defensively. Uh, And they knew that if they dropped back a a ton of guys in coverage and they were over Kelsey and Hill, especially like a blanket, it was going to be tough for, for Mahomes to complete those passes, obviously. Now, it's funny because we know that Patrick Mahomes has the ability to scramble. He did it uh, multiple times over the course of that game, but it really wasn't super effective because he was always thinking pass first and run second. Like it was, even if there was a, an open lane to run, it was always, I'm going to just run a little bit and then I'm going to reverse course. I'm going to try to find somebody else open. When again, he got he outrushed by Joe Burrow in right, the game. He wasn't taking what the defense was giving him, uh, to your point. Um, so I think it's a combination of both. But I really believe that it started, and there's been a lot of uh, chatter about this sequence of events, but uh, a, a lot of chatter about that last possession that Kansas City had going the into halftime. Half. Sure. And how you know they pushed the ball down the field. It looked like it was going to be guaranteed points for Kansas oh, City. Oh, absolutely. At the very least, a, an incredibly short chip shot field goal. But the Chiefs had an opportunity to get the ball into the end zone. Not only was it poor execution by Patrick Mahomes and a poor read by Patrick Mahomes to throw the ball behind the line of scrimmage with only a few seconds left on the clock, it was also 
disappointing that Patrick Mahomes did not recognize that there were no timeouts left that his team had. Now, a lot of that goes back to Andy Reid calling a bizarre timeout early in the first quarter before he challenged a play that ultimately he wound up winning, that he really didn't need to call the timeout, but he did it anyway. And I think Mahomes thought he still had one to work with, but he didn't. So in his mind, it wasn't a terrible read. He completed the pass, but the cameras were on him as the clock ticked to zero and he's actively calling timeout and there were no timeouts left. And I've heard, I heard all of the, you know, the, the sports talk pundits say things like that sequence of events broke Patrick Mahomes. I don't want to go that far, but I certainly think the fact that they walked away with zero points, it could have been 28 to 10 or 24 to 10 You're going into the locker way, room. If they You're punch feeling, that in there for six, uh, the feeling it's is a three so possession game different. at that point. Oh three, yeah. You're feeling you know? great. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately something happened on that drive that I think did carry over into the second half execution for they Patrick They weren't the Mahomes. same after that. Also, I, I go back to the play calling, and I, I don't want to pile on Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy, but you look at what the running backs did in that game for Kansas City. Jarek McKinnon, who has been a breath of fresh air in the playoffs, averaged 5.4 yards a carry, 12 attempts, 65 yards. Clyde edwards Lair didn't get a ton of usage. I know he had to work his way back from an injury, but he still averaged six yards a carry. Their lead backs were finding space. And I think it goes back to the fact that the Bengals defense, they were dropping back in coverage. They were they were protecting against the pass. They were letting the running backs run the ball. And I don't have the breakdown of what they did in the first half compared to the second half. What I do know is that the Chiefs completely went away from the running game in the second half. That's what was working for them. And so you, you rely on Patrick Mahomes. You put the world on his shoulders. And game in and game out, that's the way that the Chiefs have operated during his era in Kansas City. And a lot of times it's Mahomes magic. A lot of times he gets to be Superman. He can pull it off, but he is a mere mortal. He's not going to be perfect all the time. So why not go to what is working in that moment, which was the running game? That was really disappointing to me. Yeah, I I, I don't have an answer for that because you're right. When they sprinkled that in, there were seams that they found and those guys had success and I mean gosh you ask about any coach in the NFL I think if you say hey you're gonna get five yards a carry if you run the ball they're gonna say well yeah let's run the heck out of the ball (laughs) do it every time yeah yeah let's until you know make them stop us I mean 24 for 139 how many times this year did we say, God, if the running game could just do something if the defense could just do something in this game the running backs did something. They did. I mean, if you had one guy, if it was, you know, a normal, traditional, we're back in 1990, and one guy's getting all your carries, you know, it's Christian Okoye back there, and he goes 24 for 139, you're thinking, yeah, Okoye had a good game. That's a that's a great game by any standard, almost in any era of football. You get 24 carries out of one guy and 139 yards, you're thinking, that guy did his job. He right. earned his paycheck for this game. And the defense, if you look at a defense – and you've got the lead. And I know they gave up 11 points in the second half, but they did have to negotiate around all the turnovers that were the fault of Patrick Mahomes in the second half. And you look and they they gave up in the last quarter. I don't know what the scoring time is. Let's see. They gave up. There was 
the two-yard pass right before the third quarter. And then after that, not until the six-minute mark, they gave up the go-ahead field goal, and it was a 52-yarder. So for 15 minutes of the game, they gave up you know three points. The first 12 minutes of the third quarter, they gave up zero, no mm-hmm. points. So, you know, Kansas City, there were so many three and outs where they didn't move the sticks, didn't really do anything productive on first down. This team, all year, has been so dynamic on first and second down, and they weren't. There were so many times when there was incompletion on first down or, you know, maybe they would call a rare running play or Patrick Mahomes would get sacked. And the first down play, I think the Chiefs really lost this in the second half on first down because they just were not productive. They were not ahead of the chains. And they did not get into favorable third and short situations. I think that's really what killed them. Was it play calling? Was it execution? Probably probably a blend of both. And then the set, in the overtime, God, you just had this feeling, or at least I did, you know, they said, oh, well, the, the team that wins the coin toss under the new, you know, overtime rules, they win, you know, a thousand percent of the time. You just got the feeling, you know, I thought in my, in my heart and my head, I knew that Patrick Mahomes always has a chance. Whenever he has the ball in his hand, he has a chance to be special because he is special. And whether or not it broke him, maybe for this game. Next year in September, I don't think this game is going to have one iota of difference of you know how Patrick Mahomes plays next year. Maybe he's going to have a bad season. I mean, the guy is probably due to have a season where he sucks. <laughs> I kind of doubt that that's going to happen. I kind of think he's probably going to be in the Pro Bowl again next year. But maybe he does. maybe he does suck next year. I don't know. But... I do think that his confidence was shaken in the second half. We talked so many weeks, Tommy, about how the defense was going to hold this team back. It wasn't the defense. It was not the defense that held the team back in this game. No, it really wasn't. And, you know, I I really thought the secondary did a decent job on Jamar Chase. He did end up with a touchdown, but he only finished with six receptions for 54 yards. And that touchdown reception obviously came in the second half later in the game where I just really think about Joe Burrow in this game as well. Patrick Mahomes ended up with a better rating than him, but you know, obviously Joe Burrow is the guy that people are looking at as the next coming now because he beat Mahomes. Uh, He was good. Yeah, he was good. Um, he did what he needed to do to, to lead the team. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, he's the second coming of Tom Brady or anything. Um, I, I do think that he is a talented quarterback. Uh, one thing that I like about him is that he carries himself with some swag and the confidence to believe that he is the guy. He did that at LSU and he's doing that with Cincinnati now. And the whole team sort of, they, they reflect that. I mean, they, they believe that they are they bought in the, the best team in, in football and they're playing at the highest level now. Um, and that's a hats off to not only Joe Burrow, but to Zach Taylor and, you know, the, the entire uh, front office there, the entire team uh, in Cincinnati hats off to them, you know, for sure. Um, but, you know, I thought I thought Joe Burrow was good. I think that he's only going to get better. Uh, I think he's going to be a, a solid 
quarterback, one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL. I think in the AFC long term, you're looking at guys like Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, and Josh Allen. I mean, you know, I think you can probably sneak in Justin Herbert in there too, um, as kind of the the upper echelon, the top tier. I guess Lamar Jackson also in the conference, but you know, really, I think those are the guys. Um, but again, going back to the Chiefs secondary, I thought they did okay in coverage. You know, T. Higgins, they were able to, he was able to find openings because of the defense's focus on Jamar Chase. Uh, but, you know, the Bengals, they were missing C.J. Ozama. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that that helped get a little bit more attention on Jamar Chase uh, from the secondary. But no, it, they did not lose that game for Kansas City whatsoever. Um, it was tough for them. They were on the field a lot. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, there were a lot of three and outs in that second half. And I think you just get to the point when you're the Chiefs defense where you just kind of get gassed. Um, there really wasn't a whole lot in there during that second half where I thought, screw this defense, they're going to lose the game for us. It was really... The offense has got to get something going, have a sustained drive, be on the field for a while, and actually generate some 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 points. And that just didn't happen. Um, you know, definitely disappointing, but it, it certainly wasn't the defense. I guess the only thing to do is to look ahead to 2022 and the next season, the 53rd season for the Kansas City Chiefs coming up for uh, the team that we love. And we will see their division opponents, of course. They will have the AFC West. They've got the conference opponents from the AFC South. So they'll be playing the Jaguars, Titans, Texans, and the Colts next year. Conference opponents, based on their division placement, will be the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals back on the schedule. And, uh, you know, you look ahead to what else they've got. They will have the NFC West next year. So the Rams are in the Super Bowl. You've got a dormant Seattle franchise an Arizona Cardinals franchise that's up and coming, and the 49ers, a team that finished runner-up in the NFC, plus their interconference opponent is going to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So this is not going to be a cupcake schedule, at least on paper. I know that things can change. We thought that Baltimore was going to be a lot better than they were this year. But on paper, at least, you look at the Titans are going to be a very solid team. Obviously, the Jaguars are, you know, the Jaguars are the Jaguars right now. Houston is a team that's weighed down in the dumps. I think the Colts have a chance to be a lot better. The Raiders and the Chargers, if, as people say, Rodgers goes to Denver, how will that change? I don't know if that's as likely as some national pundits think that it is. But you look at the Bengals, Bills, Rams, 49ers, and Buccaneers with the Arizona Cardinals. They've got probably the toughest division in the NFC that they're playing next year. It is not going to be an easy schedule or an easy time for the Chiefs next year. And obviously, the two big guys with their about 15 and a half, and again, I'm not an expert on the numbers, but about $15 million in cap space is what I've been reading. Orlando Brown, Tyron Matthew are the two big, big names in terms of pending free agents that the Chiefs will have an opportunity to lock up. Tommy, 2022, what's the outlook for this team in the offseason? What their, should their priorities be as they try to start this dynasty again after having it delayed in the Super Bowl last year and the AFC Championship this year? 
Uh, you know, going back to the the schedule that you just mentioned, I mean, there, there's a lot of dominoes to fall um, between now and the beginning of the season. You know, there very well could be Kyler Murray playing somewhere else and not Arizona. Uh, the Buccaneers oh, sure. that, don't have Tom Brady fair. anymore. You know, that could be an issue. Um, uh, the, uh, just a slight downgrade at the quarterback right. position, possibly. Just a slight you know, downgrade. Uh, 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 Las Vegas has a new coach and I think Justin Herbert can take a step forward and who knows what the quarterback situation is going to be in Denver. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of Russell Wilson could play somewhere else next year too. Seattle could have a, a different quarterback. So there's a lot of unknowns there. Um, but I, I think as far as what the priorities are for Kansas city, you look at the free agents, I think you have to lock up Tyron Matthew. And that is something I know that you wholeheartedly agree with me on. Yes. You have to lock him up. Great um, job, brother. And it's not just about his play on the field. It is about what he brings to that defense. He is the defensive coach on the field. He is the field general for that defensive unit day in and day out. And kind of the same way that Eric Berry was when he played for Kansas city. So you have to find a way to lock up to Ron Matthew. Uh, you know, he's given some interviews and in his press conferences, you know, he's mentioned that he wants to finish his career in Kansas city, but yet he doesn't know if that's going to happen. I think you've got to find a way to get the cap space to lock him up and bring him back so he can finish his career as a Kansas city chief on the flip side. I think you can probably let Orlando Brown walk. Uh, you know, he was kind of touted as the big, uh, the, the big offensive line acquisition for Kansas City alongside Joe Tooney and a couple of other guys that they drafted like uh, Creed Humphrey and, and Trey Smith. And I thought Orlando Brown was serviceable, but I think you could probably draft his replacement or sign a replacement for cheaper to get under that cap number a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Chiefs let Orlando Brown walk. I don't think it is a given that he returns to Kansas City next year. As far as priorities are concerned for the Chiefs, I think you've got to look at what are your wide receiver options after Tyreek Hill. Um, you know, McCole Hardman has been touted as, you know, the last couple of years as the next guy. He's okay, but I think that, that there are other options elsewhere. I look at what Buffalo has done with their wide receiver core. Obviously, you've got Josh Allen at quarterback, but when when the Chiefs played them in the divisional round, I I guess I didn't realize until I was watching just how deep they are at wide receiver with guys like Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley and Stephon Diggs and Gabriel Davis, like name after name after name after name that they've got catching the football. Kansas City pretty much has Tyreek Hill. Um, McCole Hardman will show flashes. Uh, Demarcus Robinson really, in my opinion, is a bust. Byron Pringle is intriguing, but I'm not sure that he's ready to be a number two receiver in the league. So I think And the both Chiefs, of those guys, Tommy, are pending free agents. Yeah. So along I think with need, Josh Gordon, which I think yeah, Josh Gordon, he that's won't an be experiment. Back. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah, that he, needs to go away. He won't be back. The, the, you know, the, the Chiefs have really struggled with their wide receiver core after Tyreek Hill. Really, 
ever since they brought in Sammy Watkins. And, and Watkins was effective at times he when was he the wasn't guy. injured. But at the same time, there really just wasn't a whole lot of longevity there. So I think that's going to be important through free agency for the Chiefs to address. There's been some speculation. I don't know if this will happen or not, but Juju Smith-Schuster is a pending free agent with Pittsburgh. Obviously, Ben Roethlisberger has stepped away from the game. He might be looking for a fresh start, and he could easily slide in to that number two role behind Tyreek Hill. That's an option. Uh, So I think that's something you need to look at. And then it kind of seems to be a broken record. We talk about it every year for Kansas City, but the secondary, I think, is a little bit of a question for the Chiefs moving forward, um, you know, outside of guys like Charvarius Ward and Rashad Fenton, uh, and, and of course, Teron Matthew, if you can lock him up, what are you going to do in the secondary long-term? And then is Frank Clark viable for your team long-term? What's happening on the edges defensively? I think those are the primary questions that Kansas City will have moving forward. What about Melvin Ingram? One of the, I mean, we said yeah. probably the biggest turnaround signing, the biggest sure. acquisition that they made in the season to turn around the season. Melvin Ingram may have saved this season for all we know with how he changed the defense. He's a guy that the Chiefs will not be able, you know, he's going to be a guy looking for a new contract this year. For me, and he was playing. I mean, I think that's a big thing. Like, obviously, the Steelers kind of kicked him to the to the you know curb, and the Chiefs bring him in as kind of a prove yourself uh, contract. Yeah, and, and he did, and he did, and he's going to be looking to get paid now, whether it's by the Chiefs or somebody else. Um, I'd like to think that the Chiefs will try to find a way to bring him back because he did bring quite a bit of positive uh, to the Chiefs' defense. To me, the two guys that I look at are Ingram. And Matthew. Mm-hmm. I don't know what order. Probably Matthew first because he's been here longer. But those are the two guys. You know, Frank Clark, Clark the Shark. It's a great nickname. But at the end of the day, I think it's time for him to go. I, I The economics of that, from what I'm reading on Pro Football Network, they're saying that they can free up to $22 million if they cut him and Anthony Hitchens. I'd say if 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 22 million of cap space is what you need to get those two guys to get Matthew and to get Ingram, then I think that you've got to do that. Uh, Jerron Reed, Travarius Ward, Mike Hughes, Derek Nadi, uh, and Dan, Dirty Dan Sorensen are the other guys who are going to be gone. I, I don't think there's a prayer that Daniel Sorensen is going to no. be back for Kansas City. Uh, that's not going to happen. So I also think in terms of the NFL draft. You know, if there is a value type of a guy who can play wide receiver or in the secondary, if you can find that in the lower, you know, obviously the Chiefs are not going to be drafting high ever, you know, hopefully because they're going to be just a good team. So if you can find a value guy that can plug into one of those spots or maybe a linebacker of Ingram cannot be retained, then that's going to be the way that they have to go in, in the draft coming up. So one more question for you before we totally move away from the Chiefs and and looking forward with them. So once again, another year that Eric Bieniemy was not selected to be a head coach in the National Football League. Crazy. Now his his contract is up. There is speculation that he could potentially leave Kansas City for another offensive coordinator position. I can I can understand the thought process if that is the decision he wants to go. That thought process of maybe I'll have a better opportunity to become a head coach if I become an offensive coordinator somewhere else. Uh, Maybe my time in Kansas City is up and it's not getting me to where I need to go. What do you think the odds are that Eric Bieniemy is on the sidelines in Kansas City next season? 
I think it's very good. Um, and the reason is because despite the last 25 minutes or 35 minutes of that game, he still got the best quarterback and he still has the best head coach. And from all accounts, I mean, and Andy Reid has talked, it was kind of comical because there are these people on sports talk radio that we have to listen to down here, uh, mostly national guys who will say, oh, there's nobody that's that nobody wants to get out on a limb for Eric Bieniemy." I mean, did you listen to Andy Reid last offseason? Every time he was asked about Eric Bieniemy, he said, I can't believe this guy's not a head coach. Like literally every time. So don't talk to me about how nobody's sticking their you know, arm out for Eric Bieniemy. That's ridiculous because Andy Reid has done that. Now, should other guys be saying that? That's not for me to judge. I'm not saying that they're wrong about that. But Andy Reid has told everybody who will listen that this guy is a head coach. And like like I said, when even when Weston was on the show, this is a pro Eric Bieniemy show. <laughs> so if Eric Bieniemy wants to stay in Kansas City, I want Eric Bieniemy to be our offensive coordinator for as long as you know he doesn't count against the salary cap. So as for as long as we can keep him, I want him to be with us in Kansas City. So if he wants to stay, I think it's going to be fairly difficult for him to find a better situation to go into. Can another team offer him more money? Yeah, maybe, probably, who knows. But at the end of the day, nobody else can offer Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, and Patrick Mahomes, and they're all locked up. I mean, those are guys that they have signed. There's not going to be, you know, I don't know how long the deals are, but it's not something like, well, in two years, this could all fall apart. They, those guys are all cemented to deals. They're going to be in Kansas City. Their futures are secured, you know, you know, pending the, the fact that they can stay healthy, which they there's no indication that, you know, Patrick Mahomes has suffered some pretty serious injuries and come back from them. So there's no indication that these guys are going to be injury prone. So for me, I think that he will be back. Uh, another thing that I think, the Chiefs may want to address in the draft, maybe some pass rushing. Kansas City was not a great rusher of the quarterback this year. And so I think if they can get better on that front, you know, maybe get the guy on the outside to complement Chris Jones and the way that he wrecks offenses on the inside, maybe Jones' numbers go down, but because Jones is so disruptive and guys have to, you know, bring an extra guy over to block him, that opens things up on the outside. So that's how I see the offseason. We will see how the Chiefs do in 2022. It is a long way back in the NFL. Seems like for all these teams, when you get so close to the last game, Final Four in March Madness, AFC Championship. God, seems like a long way back uh, to give yourself a chance to play for it all. But just like the Chiefs do, we will have to move on. And move on we will to the number 25 team in the country, the Wichita State Shocker softball team. They are set to get their season started on Friday against Dayton at the Bearcat Classic. It is being hosted by the Bearcats of Sam Houston State. There they will play Dayton, the host Bearcats. South Dakota, Houston Baptist, and more down in Huntsville, Texas, because unfortunately, they probably could have played home games here at Wichita this weekend, but of course, last weekend, uh, that was was not even remotely possible. This is a team coming off of an American Athletic Conference championship with the reigning player of the year back, but Tommy... Despite all that, there is a lot that they are missing off of last year's team in terms of home run hitting, in terms of just overall leadership. 
Madison Peregrine, one of their top pitchers in the circle, Bailey Lang, their best pitcher is not going to be back. Riley Buck, the Wellington product is not back. Bailey Nickerson, Kaylee Hooker, who are, they were amazing defensively for the Shockers. They are all gone. That was probably the best team that the Shockers have ever put on the field, winning 41 games. They got to an NCAA regional championship game. But you look at who they do have back. The AAC Player of the Year, Sidney McKinney. The best young talent probably in the entire conference, Addison Barnard out of Beatrice, Nebraska, the most outstanding player of the AAC tournament. And you're hoping that some pitching can develop. Neely Herring hit 10 home runs last year. Lauren Mills hit 11 home runs last year. Bailey Urban is patrolling the outfield again. You lost a lot, but there is some big-time firepower coming back on this team. And that's a testament to what Christy Breadbinner has done with this team. You know, she's set this squad up for long success, not just a flash in the pan one season. Your players are gone. You don't have anybody else to come in. I think the biggest difference from last year for the Shockers and this year for the Shockers is they obviously have that conference title now. They're the hunted now, not the hunter. They've got a target on their back. They've got all the other teams in that conference that are gunning for that title and gunning for them. Also, you've got a national ranking, you know, so you're getting that national press, that national recognition. Uh, And this is a team that, you know, depending on how well the new squad gels with the, the holdovers from the previous season, we could be talking about a deep postseason run yet again for Shocker softball. It's a little bit different because, you know, if you recall last year, you know, I think th- I think that we did, I think we mentioned Shocker softball at the beginning of the season, but it was fairly under the radar until we started well, to definitely. see what they were capable of and what they were doing consistently game in and game out. And then all of a sudden we were like, well, I think we need to probably be talking about the shockers more. Probably need to do a little bit more of this. So now the, the, the coverage, the, the press, the attention it's there from the beginning more so than it was a season ago. So if the, the shockers can handle that pressure and handle that spotlight, I think good things are ahead for them. Well, and you look at the, this roster, the way it is constructed right now, you know, they have brought in some big time talent and some of these girls, I think, are going to have a chance to compete and and will be contributors right away. And, you know, leading the charge in that department is going to be Ariel James. She is out of Houston and was a major, major player for them last year. So this is not just some, you know player who's transferring and complaining about playing time. She was a three-time All-American, All-American Athletic Conference, but three-time All-Conference at second base, and she's hit 364 in her career. So this is not some no-name podunk player who's coming in. I mean, she will probably be the opening day starter with the previous starter graduating. She's probably going to start on Friday and probably for most of the year at second base. And then you've got a former Big 12 Freshman of the year from Texas Tech, Zoe Jones. Yeah, who that's could a be big on the, transfer. Yes, from the left side, transferring in from uh, she was Big Twelve freshman team in 2019. I think I said freshman of the year. She was Big Twelve freshman team in 2019. Slightly different, but she could be a contributor on the left side, playing at the hot corner. I think that the really really big issue that the Shockers need to clean up this year, not necessarily clean up, but 
pitching, I think, could put this Shocker team over the top. Because we saw in the NCAA tournament, I don't remember what school. It was some school from the South. And, you know, not really expected to do much. Not much in the way of having a really, you know, established program. But they had an unbelievable pitcher. And she captured America's heart. And, you know, I probably should know her name, but I don't. That she was absolutely amazing last year. Bingham is back for Wichita State. Wichita's number two starter. She was 10-3. and She actually had the best ERA on the team last year at 3.0. Aaron McDonald last year was kind of up and down. There are some freshmen who could come in, but who is going to establish themselves as that dominant pitcher for Wichita State? And can Bingham take the next step to become one of the top pitchers in the conference? Pitching, I think, is not something that Wichita State really excelled at. They were okay at it. They had good, and at times the pitching was really good, but it was not at the level of their defense, and it was not at the level of, of clearly at the level of their offense and their power hitting, which was ungodly, you know, gaudy numbers, you know, in terms of home runs last year. So I think the pitching is the X factor on this team. That's going to be the biggest question mark. Like you, you call it the X factor, I call it the question mark because uh, let's face it, the Shockers leaned on Bailey Lang all the time last oh, yeah. season. And she was the workhorse of that pitching staff for the Shockers. Um, you know, Caitlin Bingham was obviously a solid number two, and Aaron McDonald pitched as well. But it was the Bailey Lang show. Uh, oh, yeah. N- pretty much game in, game out for Shocker softball. She's gone now. So you've got the number two and number three starters there. But it's going to be kind of more committee-based, it looks like, for the Shockers. And who is going to rise to the cream of the crop? I don't think that you're going to see anybody rise to the level of where Bailey Lang was to just have that one person pitch all the time like Lang did last season for the Shockers. But what will the newcomers look like? What will what will the strategy be pitching for Wichita State rather than relying on primarily one pitcher and then giving her rest with somebody else when she needs it? Um, are you going to see more of a balanced rotation? What will that look like pitching-wise for the Shockers? To me, that's the biggest question mark. And both of these young ladies, they have done it before because you'll recall, you know, Lang was out for most of 2019. So it was basically those two. It was Bingham and it was McDonald in 2019. McDonald was 15 and 12 with an ERA of 2.9. Bingham went 13 and I with an ERA of 2.6. So they were not bad at all. They had, you know, some big time games. Remember, it seems like one of them had. Maybe Bingham had a, a against a ranked UCF team through like a, a three hit shutout or a four hit shutout or something. It was a two hit shutout, and she held them scoreless for ten and a third innings the yeah. next day. And that game ended in a tie, if I recall correctly. So she's... I think Shocker fans should keep their eyes on Allison Cooper. She's a, a lefty. She's a top prospect out of Texas. She is someone that yeah is going to be a little green stepping into the Shocker program, but she she could. Continue contribute some valuable innings, uh, whether that is starting or in relief. They've got a couple of other newcomers. They've got a, a one pitcher that redshirted last year that, you know, looks to get some action this year. But um, I, you're, I think you're going to, I think you are going to need to have at least another option. Nothing against Bingham or McDonald. I think that they've proven themselves to be 
find quality pitchers on this staff, but I think it's going to be important, especially if the Shockers want to have a deep postseason run, to have at least a third pitcher ready to go, and it very well could be Allison Cooper. It is kind of a brutal schedule. The Shockers have 11 home games the entire year. 11. They don't play at home until playing Kansas on March 23rd. So I don't know how that schedule got designed. Obviously, yeah. when you're you know, kind of a mid-major, you know, you want to go and play these big programs. You know, you have to do some things. And obviously, playing in Wichita, Kansas, in March and February is often a very dicey, you know, projection. But um, you're not going to have many chances to go out and see them. The Kansas game is March 23rd, a six o'clock first pitch. The good thing is, if you can't make it here, all of the home games as of right now, are going to be on ESPN+. Plus. The South Florida game will also be on ESPN+, Plus via the American Athletic Conference deal with ESPN. And so that is how you can follow the Shockers this year. Once again, 2.30, first pitch on Friday at the Bearcat Classic. They'll come back and play the host team, Sam Houston State, later that day. They've got games as well on the Saturday and then one on Sunday a midday game against Sam Houston State. So they'll play the hosts twice, Houston Baptist, South Dakota, and Dayton. They will all play once as Shocker softball will get underway here very, very shortly. And, of course, we got to mention Shocker baseball as well. Shocker baseball preseason fourth in the 2022 preseason poll. No big surprise that East Carolina gets six of the seven first-place votes. They are picked first. Tulane second, followed by Cincinnati, then the Shockers, Central Florida. Somehow South Florida at number six got a first place vote. I don't know how that happened, but somehow they're in sixth place and somebody had them first on their ballot. So who knows how that's going to work out. Houston and then everybody apparently thinks Memphis is going to be like the worst team ever because they got seven points. So apparently the Tigers are going to be <laughs> literally the worst team in the history of baseball because nobody believes in them. And we're going to be talking, there are two main guys, not that there aren't others on this Shocker baseball team that we're going to have to pay attention to, Tommy, but to me, Garrett Kosas, Jace Kaminsky are going to be the two that we watch. They were both preseason All-American Athletic Conference. Kosas at first base, struggled with the injury bug last year. If he stays healthy, could have a monster season. And Jace Kaminska had just a spectacular first season as a shocker. Yeah, he did. And I think my biggest question for Eric Wedge's squad is, can they finally break through? Um, yeah, I think that Eric Wedge is the right coach for Wichita State long-term. He loves that program. He loves that university. Um we're now getting to the point of his tenure where I think it's time for that next step. And we did talk about that a little bit last season. You know, the Shockers had a really good start to the 2020 season, if you'll recall, before COVID-19 Amazing. shut everything down. That kind of took the wind out of the sails a little bit for the Shockers. Didn't have as quite of good of a season last year. Uh, it was kind of up and down. I remember us talking on this show about it was sort of a roller coaster. Like you would look at one week and they were playing really well. The next week they played pretty terribly. And it just was kind of like that all season long for the Shockers. So 
what does the consistency look like for this program coming into this season? And can Eric Wedge and his squad take the next step? And he's got a couple of guys, like you mentioned, Kosis and Kaminska, that are going to be sliding more into leadership roles on on this team uh, and at least major contributors like they were last year. Who else is ready to step up? And what is that next step then for Shocker Baseball? Well, you recall, you remember they had that eight-game series against Houston. They played all the games in a row. They played some in Houston. They came back, played them in Wichita. They won seven of eight. They played the first game ever at, um, I almost said Lawrence Dumont Stadium, at (laughs) Riverfront Stadium. Still hate that name. But then after that, they got swept by Tulane. They lost three of four to Cincinnati. Then, Then they go to number eight. East Carolina, or they host number eight East Carolina, and they split with them after getting trounced in the first game 10 nothing. They come back and beat them 12 to 2, and they split with number eight East Carolina. So uh, take three or four from Central Florida, can't polish off a sweep against uh, South Florida, only win three or four against Memphis last year. So kind of an up and down season. I, I think the. Di- as you mentioned, the consistency is going to be really, really important for Wichita State this year. They are starting a little bit later, February 18th, at Louisiana Tech is where they will start for their baseball season. Still got some news and notes to get to in our additions, corrections, and retraction statement uh, or uh, segment of the show. But we will go ahead and hit the music as it is time to go around Wichita and hit the music as we bring you the Wichita Whip Around, it is a look at all the best stories from the Wichita area of sports that maybe you missed in the last couple of weeks. Tommy, where are you going for your Whip Around story? Yeah, kind of a little disappointing in this story today. Uh, I don't know if uh, if you saw the news about uh, this. I believe it came out last week that the NBC World Series released their schedule this summer in Wichita. Saw that. They are not playing at Riverfront Stadium this season, which I think is a... Big time Boo. missed opportunity, uh, and I'm not here to point fingers. I'm not here to shoulder any kind of blame, and you know, I just think that it's a it's a bummer, it's a shame that you've got the NBC World Series, which is synonymous with Wichita, and they were unable to reach a deal to play at Riverfront Stadium. That could be a combination of things, uh, and I don't want to speculate on what it is. It could be scheduling conflicts. It could be financial it could it could be a variety of different things i just think it's disappointing i think it's sad and totally avoidable yeah because the whole deal about building the stadium was that it was going to be the home for wichita for you know wichita baseball and that the nbc was going to have a home in that building that they, was they how they talked it was about putting a a museum in yes in that stadium, on the property, so, a museum dedicated specifically to the NBC World Series. And that they would have offices in there. Right. So what happened? I yeah. mean, they. I understand they wanted the deal for the acreage around, which we gave to them for like apparently a dollar or something. Right. You know, I, I get that. And I'm not bitter at how the development has, you know, really not progressed to this point. There was a pandemic. I understand that. Things were slowed down. Things apparently are getting better now. The original owner passed away. I mean, those things, the vision changes. You know, that's that's a problem. 
major changes throughout minor league baseball. I get yeah. that, but it's like you can't build like three rooms for the, how much space does the NBC right. need? You can't build three extra rooms with all that money that was spent there, with all the money that you saved on the land that we sold to you for a dollar. You and, can't put in the NBC offices in I'm, there. Come on. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real honest too. There was a long stretch in Wichita where the the professional baseball was so poor in the city that the NBC World Series was better quality baseball than what was being oh, yeah. put on otherwise. Now, things are different now with the wind surge in, in, in town and I'm so glad that they're here and I'm a big supporter of them. But it's sad to me that there's not more collaboration like that. And I, I, I worry, I'm concerned that long term, you're going to see sort of this uh, very much like isolating mentality. Like it's the wind searcher stadium and nobody them. else's, right? And really that, like you said, the whole point of the stadium was that it's not just affiliated baseball, it's Wichita baseball in general will have yes. a home in this stadium. That's what the, the taxpayers were, were sold. Hopefully it happens. I, I hope it does. Uh, I am going to stay on the baseball diamond, and I'm going to go with a much more uh, positive story than you gave us, Tommy. Second week in a row with a downer. God, Sorry. killing us here. Uh, Newman Jets baseball has started 4-1. It is the best start to a season for the Jets in program history in the Division II era, starting 4-1 after a 9-5 loss to Southern Nazarene, the Jets absolutely obliterated SNU 4-0, 15-2, 12-11. Then they went to Northwestern Oklahoma State down at Alva, and they whipped the Rangers 17-5. So they have scored at least 12 runs in three straight games. They have gotten some amazing pitching performances here early in the season. And, you know, I talked to Coach Mouse on the JetCast podcast to preview this a couple of weeks ago, and he told me, you know, the, the, the arms are going to be a big difference for us this year. And you've got Carson Hawks, Jake Angelico, Hayden Vandepaul, Lincoln Schott. They're all hitting over 400 right now. The Jets have on their roster currently seven guys who are hitting 350. Now, it's obviously very, very early, and maybe all those teams down there are terrible. I don't know. Coach Mouse would have to be the the judge of that. But the pitching was such an issue for the Navy and Red last year. Right now, as a staff, uh, their ERA is down to about 5.2, which in college baseball is not terrible. But in terms of the starters, uh, they have gotten much, much better starts than they did last year. Connor Langrell was tremendous in the area of three. Nate Denniston has been tremendous going six innings. So th- they have gotten guys. Uh, Langrell came in as a, as a reliever in that game. Uh, Garrett Van Deventer has given the Jets some good innings. So so far, the offense has been unbelievable for the Jets with better pitching. The Jets have already hit nine home runs in this in this season. So uh, super excited about the future of Jet baseball coming up. They actually do not open up McCarthy Field until Friday, February 18th. They are on the road for a three-game series at East Central coming up on Saturday, noon and three for the first pitch there against the Tigers. They'll wrap that up against East Central down in 8 Oklahoma on Sunday at 1 o'clock. So that is our show for this week. However, we do have a couple of additions, corrections, and retractions. Anything small you want to get off your chest, Tommy? 
Yeah, very quickly, uh, as an addition, it's more of a follow-up to, I believe it was my Wichita Whip Around story two weeks ago. We mentioned the Wichita Force, uh, and they, I believe that was the Wichita Whip Around. Uh, they announced today that they are joining a brand new league. It's the Arena Football Association. Uh, the majority of the teams in the league are located in Texas. There are teams in Odessa, Texas, Houston, Texas, uh, Rio Grande Valley, the Fort Worth area, Amarillo, uh, and then they just added another new team in Jackson, Mississippi, and then the Wichita Force uh, will be the newest member of the Arena Football Association. So happy to see that uh, semi-professional football in Wichita, they found a new league to go to. I will mention here quickly uh, some news and notes about Shocker basketball. Uh, Boy, the Shocker women had a golden opportunity to win one on the road tonight. And, boy, just kind of coughed it up. 13-point halftime lead playing against East Carolina on the road. They outscored the Pirates 24-8 in the second period. They hit a three with about seven seconds to go. They foul the Pirates in the act of shooting with six seconds left. They hit all three of their free throws and send it into overtime. ECU gets the win in overtime, 61-59. to Asia Strong was really good for the Shockers with 15 points in this one. Uh, Bosch Duran hit what appeared to be the game-winning shot for Wichita State, but boy, they made an absolute mess of that last seven seconds defensively, Tommy, and they, they lose this game in overtime. And what we thought was kind of a make-or-break year, maybe not quite that drastic for Coach Adams, but a year you wanted to start to see some progress. Shockers are 11-11 and now and just 2-7 and in the American against an East Carolina team that improved to 2-8 and in the Americans. This was a team that, if you think Shocker basketball is on the come-up, a team that you would think that the Shockers would be able to beat, but Wichita State manages only 20 points in the second half of this game. Yeah, definitely disappointing. But on another note, the other team in women's basketball that we talked about at the beginning of the season about needing to see some progress from Brandon Schneider and the Lady Jayhawks, they've had a pretty good season. They're fourth in the Big 12 right now, 16 and five overall, seven and four in the Big 12. They've got a big game this weekend. The Sunflower Showdown against Kansas State. Who that is they're, huge. They're right behind them in the Big 12 standings, uh, a half game back at 7-5, and five, so definitely a big matchup there. And nice to see the women's uh, squad with the improvement. I know that it you know, kind of seemed like Brandon Schneider, we talked about it on this show, needed to make some improvements if he wanted to keep his job, and it looks like he's done just that. Well, and, and not only that, but... Both of those programs, Jeff Mitty in Manhattan, has been doing a great job with the Wildcats over there. And I think I saw that KU actually has the best combined winning percentage of any men's and women's basketball program in the NCAA right now. So they, wow. they are really got it cooking in Lawrence. Down here... For Shocker men's basketball, they finally got to play Southern Methodist again after having another game postponed. Uh, They were supposed to play them in Dallas. They did play them in Wichita on Saturday. It was a convincing victory. Uh, You know, we had been wanting to see them put together a complete performance for so long. They did it. They won 72 to 57. However, the very next day, or I got not the next day, but the next game, they kind of come out and lay an egg. 
in the first half, and they trailed yeah. 43-29 to Central Florida. The Shockers almost came back. Tyson at the end of the second half was amazing, hit five three-pointers. But this Wichita State men's team continues to kind of flounder along as they drop to 12-9. They're now 3-6 and six in the AAC as they drop that one to Central Florida, 71-66, to 66, as four Knights scored in double figures. This Shocker basketball team continues to be a team that really just makes you tear your hair out if you're a Shocker fan. Yeah, you know, they, they had a hard time with the defensive rebounds in that game, um, turning the ball over too much. And it's one of those one of those things where you watch that game against SMU and you think, all right, maybe the Shockers have turned a corner. Figuring um, it out. You know, we're, we're not on the edge of our seat just begging for – something to go the way of the shockers to get the victory at the last second. Like it's a convincing victory. And then, like you said, very next game, go out and lay an egg. Uh, so it's frustrating. It's growing pains. It's the first full season for Isaac Brown. We talked about it last week. Got to give him some time. Got to get his program in place the way that he wants it. It's not all going to be roses and butterflies all the time. I think he's going to get there. Boy, and by the way, the uh, Jayhawk women, they blew out West Virginia uh, tonight as we are doing this show. They won by 18, so that's in the books as you guys are watching this on Thursday. Uh, a note about KU men's basketball. What a little twist and turn of a schedule they've had as they get beaten pretty handily, convincingly by Kentucky in the yeah. Big 12 SEC Challenge. They bounce right back and win against what I think is a pretty underrated Ames Iowa team in Iowa State. Go on the road, beat Iowa State by Without nine. Without Ochai Abaji, by the way. No Ochai Abaji. And then they absolutely hammer Baylor in Lawrence, 83 yep. to 59. And then they go down to Texas. And again, a lot like the Shocker women tonight. And it also reminds me of the, the last moments of the Texas Tech game where they just did not play well down the stretch to the to the whistle in that game at all. The ball slipping out of their hands and just some weird things happening down in Texas, which I think, as Jay Billis commented, was a closer to a rugby match than it was an actual basketball game there. I, I could not believe some of the contact that was not getting called. And we continue to see some inconsistency from the Jayhawks in these big, high-leverage situations uh, you know, what do you make of this Jayhawk team that has gotten great production out of Ochai Abaji in, in pretty much every game? He was not that good against Texas. And we talked a little bit about before how, God, why in the world is Dewan Harris playing instead of Remy Martin? Now we know it's been a foot injury for Remy Martin that's been holding him out. Now we hear that he got knocked in the knee by some Texas students. I'm not saying that Texas needs to get fined or suspended or anything like that. They did like get $25,000 they got fined. Did they? You they know, did. so I'm, I'm not calling for that. It's not breaking my heart. Like I said, if you want to rush the court, rush the court, tear down your basketball goals. I don't care. Rip up the floorboards. I don't care what you do, but you just need to keep the players away from the fans. And unlike the Kansas State, you know, situation where there was obviously a complete lack of control in that situation a few years ago, and there was, you know, I guess you would say a lack of institutional control. Um, you know, I think Texas, there was no malintent. The students were not going after the KU players. It looked like that, you know, it was just an unfortunate situation that happened. And this was kind of a hockey justice situation. I think that if 
if you know no injury comes of it, probably no fine. But because there's an injury, there is a fine. So we know why that's happening. So we know why Dewan Harris is playing so much, and we know why Bill Self has not been able to put him in the lineup as much as we would like to see. But boy, a kind of a wild four-game stretch for the Jayhawk men's basketball team as we've seen some good performances from Jalen Wilson who went for a double-double against Texas and David McCormick has been a lot more solid offensively as of late but then on the other hand against Baylor he was just one of six didn't have to be that good in that game because Christian Brown was so great but he came back with a double-figure scoring game against Texas Jalen Wilson has been averaging some good points here as of late but you know, what do you make of this Jayhawk team that's had two setbacks and two pretty good performances here in each of the last four games? You know, I, I really think that where they're lacking specifically is in the point guard play. Uh, it's not it's not a knock on Dewan Harris. I think that he brings some good things to the table. He's had a really good assist to turnover ratio I these think last he's, two. I think he's more of a role player, though, for the, for this team. Um, you know, my, my question before was, why is Dewan Harris playing over Remy Martin? Now I think my question is, why is Dewan Harris playing over Joe Yusefu? Uh, because he's stepped up in the last couple of games and provided a spark, um, offensively especially, for this Jayhawks team. Uh, I do have to give some credit to David McCormick. He has played pretty well Uh comparative to where he was at the beginning of the season. Um, and most you know, of the so, games. Baylor, he was yeah, not, but sure. he didn't have to be good. Didn't but he, be. he won for six. He can't be one for six. You know, th- I think this team has taken a little bit longer to get an idea of who is playing what role for how long and doing, you know, doing what uh, to be successful. I think that's a combination of, of and you could put that on the shoulders of the players and a little bit on the shoulders of the coaching staff. Um, we're in February now. It's 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 time to get that locked in, um, and it's different from game to game. Uh, y- you know that a couple things. You know it's going to be David McCormick and Mitch Lightfoot at the five. Occasionally KJ Adams if Bill Self wants to go that direction, but more often than not, it's McCormick and Lightfoot. And, you know, you know that Christian Brown and Ochai Abaji are going to be there. Um, but from there, is Jalen Coleman-Lands going to play? I don't know. Is Joe Yosefu going to get minutes? Not sure. Kind of depends on the game. Uh, you know, how much is Jalen Wilson going to play and how effective will he be? Is Remy Martin 100%? Are they going to hold him out until he is 100%? Are they going to try to get him back on the floor? There are a lot of question marks. With a team full of a significant amount of talent, there are Again, some major question marks as we get deeper into February. I do think they have a great chance still to win at least a share of the Big 12, even with that loss against Texas. Um, But as Jayhawk fans, you're always looking into March. You're always looking into what is the NCAA tournament going to look like. I think you've got to have some of those questions nailed down sooner rather than later. Well, and as you mentioned, Tommy, this team, unlike some other teams, this team does not lock in and get the big stop. Their defense at times has been porous, and it seems like they give up big points in big moments. And they yeah. can't get you know, like, okay, we got to have a stop on this possession. We can just get a stop right. right here. And this year, they can't get it. 
And, you know, you don't have Miles Garrett. You don't have Devontae Graham. You don't have Frank Mason the third. And maybe if Remy Martin is out there, maybe that's different. I, I don't know. But they haven't been able to get that key, key stop. So I, and you mentioned that I think a lot the last couple of weeks that statistically in terms of points per game they were like last in the Big Twelve and you know I think that that trend has kind of continued. We'll see if they can pick that up against Oklahoma for a noon tip off coming up on CBS on Saturday at the Fog. I do have one more note before we yeah, wrap up the show. Uh, Kansas State men's basketball. We would be remiss to not mention them uh, as we recorded recorded this show. The Wildcats played Baylor in Manhattan. They were tied at halftime, but Baylor gets a 15-point victory on the road in Manhattan. Here's a crazy stat for you. Nigel Pack scored 31 points in this game. The rest of the team scored 29. So Nigel Pack carried that team. The Wildcats put up 60 points. More than half of them came at the hands of Nigel Pack. So he's going to be an all-conference player, maybe an all-American, sure. and apparently there's nobody else on the team that can score. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention, Kansas State women's basketball, they had the huge upset victory over Oklahoma. Is this smoke and mirrors for this team? Because since then, they have played, the Big 12 is stacked, by the way. They yeah. played number nine, Texas. They lost by 18. Played at all on the road, all on the road. They did beat TCU and Texas Tech at home. They went to number nine, Texas, lost by 18. They went to number 11, Iowa State, lost by 15. And they went down to Baylor, number 10, and they lost by 45 to Baylor. Uh, Then that happened tonight as we were recording the show. As you mentioned, Sunflower Showdown coming up a big-time game as Kansas will try to build momentum off of a lot victory on the road at Morgantown. Kansas State tried to establish themselves again. And, you know, this Kansas State team... Are they for real or not? The Oklahoma win was very impressive, but boy, these last three games against top 25 competition, they ain't gone well and they haven't been particularly close. Yeah, uh, I, I think it is a lot of smoke and mirrors. I don't think they're for real. Um, Ayoko's uh, obviously not going to average, you know, she's not going to get to 60 again, right. which doesn't take anything away. I'm not taking no, anything away from her accomplishment at all. at all. She's still a great player, but, you know, she's not going to go out and get you 30 a night, that, you know. Yeah. That's just not going to happen. So that is a 6 p.m. tip-off. You'll have to have the plus for that uh, Sunflower Showdown at Bramlage Coliseum uh, to see that. And that'll wrap it up. Kind of a more lengthy ACR segment than we normally do, but with only doing the show every other week, uh, you know, I feel like that's probably an okay thing for us to uh, be talking about that. And when we come back after the next couple of weeks, boy, we're going to be getting pretty close, Tommy, to the end of conference season. Probably going to be getting there around that two weeks left, so probably going to be pretty basketball heavy here as we talk Shockers, Jayhawks, and Wildcats over the next couple of weeks, and obviously we'll keep our eye on Shocker softball and Shocker baseball as well as those seasons get started. Once again, as I said at the top of the show, really appreciate you all liking, subscribing, sharing the podcast if you enjoy the content. Thank you so much for your support. You can follow us at CogPod on Twitter and, of course, CogSports.com. Like, share, and subscribe on all the platforms. And you can, of course, watch the video, as always, on our Facebook page or on YouTube. And you can follow us on Twitter as well. And for our beloved audio listeners, Tommy, where can they find you on Twitter? You can follow me anytime on Twitter at Tweets from Tommy. I am at B.E. Cripps. We will see you in a couple of weeks on the Keeper of the Games. Take care, guys.
You've been listening to Keeper of the Games. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Visit our website at cogsports.com. Find the podcast and videos on Facebook and YouTube at Keeper of the Games. And follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CogPod. That's K-O-G-Pod.